Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter 16. I expected they'd keep us waiting there for some time, but the opposite turned out to be true. Montero admin reps, direct from corporate HQ and elsewhere, arrived only 10 hours after the handoff. They then blazed over from the jump point in a very sporty passenger boat that didn't head for Blue Light Station or even Wildcard. It came straight to City State. I was told a meeting that required my presence would be held in a couple of hours and that I should make myself available. That was smirk-worthy since I had nowhere to go aboard the carrier and nothing whatsoever to do. Indeed, this meeting was probably the only reason I was aboard. They gave me a visitor's pass that would allow for some onboard sightseeing under escort, but was then shown to a small lounge and asked to wait. They didn't even lock the door, though a guard was posted outside who smiled and asked if I needed anything every time I stuck my head out. An hour in, there was a knock and a steward came through with some sandwiches and a carafe of coffee. Everyone was very polite and solicitous. I started to get frightened then, really for the first time since I'd been rescued. There was no way to finesse this that I could see. My fate and the fates of many other people were in the hands of strangers. It was a feeling of utter powerlessness. I got an attack of the shakes, sitting there in that small, quiet room, in that moderately comfortable upholstered chair. They had me now, these fleeties. They could prosecute me for any number of unforeseeable violations of the law, or turn me over to the handshake, well and truly happy to be rid of a problem. They could make me disappear, a practice I was always ready to attribute to huge, faceless organizations with a lot on the line. A lifetime's worth of bad news could fall on my shoulders from this job, and it was enough to put me into a full-blown panic attack. Again. I worked through the jitters, but not the fear That would be by my side for the entire duration. That's really weird, was Stina's only comment. 
Apparently, the censor specialists had picked up a confidential inter-office memorandum between Brand and VP Bailey, basically thumbnailing the plan to plant Quan T and myself in R&D. When I called Shady Lady after work to inform Dieter I was now outside the electrical closet on watch, our ML immediately jumped on the line and demanded details about the new position. I had signed NDAs about secrecy, though. Before you say anything more, I cautioned, with Chris just shaking his head in my eye view in wonder and disgust. The answer is no. Of course it is, he growled then cut his feed malignantly. I'm coming back down now, Dieter said then. What's up with Mavis? Tomorrow's my day off, so I can stay up late tonight. Let's hit the pub and we'll talk there. I want to hit the pub, SS2 stated and just stared at me. Me too, John put in morosely. Uh, sorry, I offered. Bye. Stina stared, John looked away, and they cut the call. In about 15 minutes, Dieter informed me he was ready to exit the closet. I had him wait for a small group to pass. Then he was out, and we were walking away, free and clear. So? Mavis? Well, she's still out cold. John and Stina think it's a software issue with the cerebral cortex interface in one of her neural implants. She's seemingly stuck in a REM sleep cycle. She appears to be dreaming sometimes, but it's hard to say. She doesn't respond to any outside stimulation at all. Near as we can figure, the sensory centers of her brain are completely shut off. She can't see, hear, smell, taste, or feel. She's in a coma? Something like one. He walked broodingly, eyes lowered, his features set in a hungover funk. You don't think this is accidental, do you? He gave me a sidelong glance, but didn't otherwise change his preoccupied aspect. I don't know. There was a subtext I couldn't pick up on. Or maybe it's just a feeling... I smiled hello at a couple people passing by whom I knew, then replied, If she's in danger, whether it's an accident or not, we need to take her out of there and get her some help. Criminal charges are one thing, but a person's life is another. I agree, but I'm not sure what's going on. I'm no cybernetic specie jock. That's a whole different ball of wax from shipboard systems. Heck, there isn't even a specialist for it on station that I know of. I looked through the medical directory. Team has personnel with neural implants, so they'd have people who could help Mavis. Yes, he agreed, thinking it over. The others put her on fluids and nutrients, but to be honest, I don't know if she even needs them. Either way, the next step would be to put her back on ice. Makes sense, I continued, feeling devilish and advocational. But on the other hand, if she's actually been, what, sabotaged, hacked, I don't even know the word. Let's say, um, rendered unconscious, it's less charged. Okay, if she's been rendered unconscious, then it was by those three back there. And a software problem means John or Stina. 
To what end? What does stranding us gain them? Maybe it's about delaying us. Well, it's a poor effort, then, he replied quietly and reflectively. Chris is a qualified star jump pilot. He's a pilot? That never came up even once in the prep meetings. Or since, for that matter. How do you know? With my clearance, I was able to look at complete crew bios back on Circlet. Okay, I said, letting that one slide for the moment. But only the captain can get us out of here unseen. I'm sure he knows it. I mean, the trip here was like a slow miracle. No, they'll keep us on mission until they get what they want. Then she'll make a miraculous recovery and we'll all fly off into the sunset. Fortune secured. They? You think it's all of them? He looked deeply troubled, but not at all shocked. The gulf between the known and the suspected wasn't so wide that this leap was hard to make. It didn't render the effort less frightening, though. Seems likely, I concluded. Our ML couldn't knock her out by himself, and neither sensor special could pull it off without the other one figuring it out. We walked in silence the rest of the way to Samples. Barney and the gang weren't there yet, but they probably would be soon. I actually looked forward to an evening of congenial company, free of plots and duplicity. I did so like an addict does a fix. Though Shady Lady was within walking distance of any spot on the station, this was no longer a comfort. Yes, it was the finest, most advanced small vessel I'd ever been signed to. It represented the highest, most prestigious contract I'd ever landed. Yet, like a cold, dead weight, it was tugging at my conscience. What was necessary and expedient was beginning to feel wrong. Very wrong. Admin Supervisor CPM06 Jacob Hammerhuls looked up from the data pad in his hand to pinion me with his eyes. He had an impressive scowl that reached out like a slap from a broad face set in a permanent state of distaste. He didn't seem mad at me especially, just mad, as if the universe as a whole failed to live up to even one of his expectations. Nice to have you in R&D, Jack he said, offering his hand with a mild friendliness that completely threw me. Uh, thanks. I'm happy to have a chance to help out. We're in a transitional stage at the moment, he explained, as if I'd asked. There won't be much hands-on for some time. A couple of our people hit their contract durations and chose to leave the project. I thought I knew everybody in system with gunnery experience. Where were you hiding? Just a small ship assigned to support duty. I can't go into exact details, of course. You know how it is. Right. Well, you come highly recommended by HR and your background is good. There will be a ton of weapons testing and calibration to do in the next couple of quarters, but right now we're in an assessment phase. How much do you know about the last test? Were you around for that? The tone of the question was ever so slightly more smooth and offhand than anything else he'd said, 
which rather flagged it for me. If I had come in after the test, then I might have come in on someone's orders and was sniffing around for problems. I actually arrived just before the test. In fact, our ship wasn't even in place yet to participate in any secondary tracking when we were told to stand down. I found out a little later that something had gone wrong, but that's about all. He thought for a bit, then grunted. He was a big fellow, round and tall, a bit like Barney, but he didn't carry the weight so well. And his perpetual frown was a mask that couldn't have been hiding anything festive. I'd been briefed on this man. He had a reputation for being difficult to please, less because he was a perfectionist than because he was a jerk. The likely source of his civility now was distrust. The two people he mentioned who'd left the project had been secretly bought off by VP Bailey via some discretionary funds available to Specsign. Those people would still be watched and interrogated elsewhere, but the holes they left in R&D allowed for this opportunity. Their sudden departure was not something a man like Jacob Hammerhulse would accept at face value, but neither was he a deep thinker who could piece it all out, or so I'd been assured. To me, he was looking more like an engineer searching for production flaws in a newly delivered piece of hardware. I'd have to be inspected closely, test-fitted, and watched critically. I might be just perfect for the job, I might be the wrong part entirely. I might, in fact, be a damaging piece sent deliberately by R&D's detractors in order to hurt them. Time would tell, and right now, he had the time to take. Well, let's give you a tour of the shops, he stated after more door musing. Then I'll get you settled in with Gaza Mator. She's lead tech for onboard defense, and you'll be on her spec team. I'm sorry, spec team? He had been standing then and just threw me a look that was equal parts puzzlement and irritation. Specialist team? He asked with unrestrained disgust. Oh, okay. I've never worked in R&D before. Your terminology is unfamiliar. He just shook his head as if he'd found his first flaw. Quan T had started a day and a half before, over in Hull Design, which was the biggest single sub-department within research and development. He had already reported back to Brandon that he was getting the cold shoulder. That was hardly a surprise, considering the circumstances and the man's personal style. I'd have thought he would make an effort, but perhaps he was. Seeing aspects of Siddle in him had been wishful thinking. It was becoming clear that the man of mystery nonsense wasn't really a show, yet nor was it real. It was the guy's lifeline, a reflection of who he wanted to be. In the end, though, Quan was just a techie egghead like the rest of us. And like the rest of us, he had no undercover training at all. Place him in a skittish crowd like this one, with his poker face, monosyllabic replies, and silly sunglasses, and all he did was raise red flags. Hull design was on this floor in a section all its own. That would have made contact between us feasible, except that Quan and I didn't have compatible shifts. 
That was just as well, since there wasn't much either of us could do to help the other. And if he was stumbling right out of the gate, I sure didn't need him looking my way for support. Jacob and I walked out of his small, messy office and down the companionway to a set of armored double doors. There were no guards, but I recognized the heavy installation above the entranceway as an integrated autogun. In appearance, it was just a long, black, glassy-looking box above the top frame. Inside was a dedicated AI, cameras and other sensors, and a weapon system of some kind, which could have been anything. In addition to the embedded full-body scanners throughout the station, anyone going further inside R&D had to pass muster with this thing. Do not approach this door without that badge, Jacob instructed, tapping the rounded metal rectangle that hung from my neck. It bore my face and name. He wore a tag just like it, as did everyone else I'd seen walking around here. In direct contravention to what I'd been told back on Shady Lady, badges were, in fact, required in this section. They were picked up at the automated security desk at the outer entrance to the department and turned back in upon leaving. The badge codes were then changed and re-keyed to the individual when they returned, whether that person was going on vacation or just a lunch. It seemed a primitive security method and superfluous to boot, but I found out later that the badges contained tiny tags manufactured from a material that could be given specific molecular resonances that were then assigned to individual biological profiles. The sensors on the door looked at different physical criteria in people than the standard devices in the rest of the station, the exact nature of which was classified, naturally. This information was then instantly used by the AI as a basis for a cipher. The key to this cipher was the resonance of the badge. If the key didn't match the cipher, the door remained locked, security was alerted, and maybe the individual so failing got perforated by an autogun. Badges, therefore, were useless to anyone except the person they were issued to, nor could they be forged, since it was unknown what the bioscanners were actually looking at when a cipher key was being tested. Despite, or rather because of, this imposing system, the double doors moved aside silently for us, and, after a short walk through an alcove, the hallway opened up on a very large open space, like a metal cavern. Ambient light was kept low, but certain areas had overhead spots and directed floods focused on them. An echoing voice that sounded artificial announced a set of numerical readings for a particular system check, with stately, ponderous solemnity. Workers welded something big in the shadowed distance, offering up moments of bright, burning illumination that flared and vanished at random. People scuttled back and forth along the deck, along a catwalk above, and along temporary scaffolding that webbed a huge object in the center of the cavern, a machine not so obscured that I couldn't recognize it with a sudden, visceral imperative. It was a free jump just like the one I'd killed. Wow! Wow is right, Jacob affirmed. You're playing with the big kids now, Ejok. Stay focused, follow instructions, and you'll be part of the greatest tech achievement in modern times. 
Screw up and you won't be able to get a job begging in the streets. This way. We walked over to a set of cookie-cutter offices, all in a line. These, I found out, were for the various sub-department or spec team leaders, and we stopped at one that had a raven-haired woman inside, with skin nearly the same color, standing with her back to us. The door was open. She was studying a tridy projection of some circuitry, which flickered in the air over a table. Here's the new guy, Jacob said without preamble, and overly loud, I thought. The woman must have thought so, too, because she jumped like she was stuck with a pin. God, will you please stop doing that? He grunted again. Don't have your back to the door, then. I told you, she countered, losing an effort to compose herself. My display needs calibrating. I can't see it from any other direction. Look at this. Didn't you tell Tom? Yes, several times. And I filed a maintenance request. He keeps saying he'll get to it. Then he'll get to it. You don't have an exclusive on repairs, you know. There are other people in line. And you know how I feel about pointless requests, Gaza. If you can just ask for something, then ask. Don't clog up the system with paperwork. This is Ejac something or other. What was it again? Uh, DeSantos, I supplied. Yeah, he's replacing Rudy. He needs the tour. I'm busy. Then he turned and walked away without another word. She watched him leave with venomous eyes, then welcomed me in with a handshake. CPT-06, Dr. Gazamator, she said. Call me Gaz. Doctor? Of engineering, yes. The only respect you'll get around here is the kind you take. That was our friendly supervisor. Do you like him? We all like him. We love him. You can see why. Then she sighed and looked to the floor for a moment. My apologies, Ejok. I shouldn't let little things bother me. Certainly not in front of others. No problem at all. If there's anything I can do... Thank you. Okay, so the tour. I could use a break. Let's go. Gaz was dressed in a long white smock, almost like an apron, over a nice greenish dress suit and matching shoes. Her black hair, now that I could see it up close, was lightly streaked with silver and tied into a large bun on top of her head. It made her look studious and stately at the same time. In other circumstances, she'd have been a striking woman. Right then, she just seemed frazzled and tired and grateful for a few minutes away from major concerns. She led me over to a set of doors further past the offices, and these opened on to another large room, this one dedicated to microfabrication and repair. It was filled with hundreds of discrete machines and tool sets, and the dozen or so people in there using them were making a ton of noise. This is the machine shop! Gaz just about had to shout to be heard. Our spec team, onboard defense, has a crystal focusing rod for the ship's new pack array extruding right now. She pointed to a large gray box in the far corner. It won't be ready for at least three more days. Hull design is furious. The other formulator is down, but we were here first. She laughed, then moved us on.
I thought work was at a halt right now, I commented after we'd left the noise behind. Gaz started up the steps to the catwalk, but spoke over her shoulder. We're never at a halt. The testing schedule has been thrown out, but we have to keep focused. When all the investigations are through, we can't afford to be behind. Corporate is screaming for results. As it is, I have another round later this shift with LPM, a uh, local project management. That is to say, the admin meat puppets for upper management on Interstar. I might have to turn you over to someone else at some point. I'm sorry. Oh, sure. Whatever's easiest. She gave me an appreciative nod when she got to the top and directed my attention to the wide expanse of the project bay. The view was quite a thing, with the curve of the station's radius clearly visible. From up here, you can see it all. Our own little workshop is over that way, the red door. We'll make our way there eventually. It's not much. Understand something, though, Ejok? Onboard Defense is its own sub-department. No one said anything to the contrary to me, I told her, but she just frowned. They will. Mostly we work with three other groups. Hull Design, Power Gen Dis, uh, Generation and Distribution, and Computers. You're a real commercial gunner then? The non-sequitur caught me off balance, but I nodded. Uh, yeah, civilian class. Licensed for work here in corporate back in the Alliance and over in Noble Space. Gotta renew that one soon, I muttered, just thinking of it then. No love for the Papals? Never been, I confessed and shrugged. I work the borders on this end of Ain Space. It's where the jobs are. If all goes well, this could be a long-term position. Does that interest you? It was a legitimate question, and one I'd rather been expecting, yet... Suddenly, it felt like she was fishing. As a manager, she would want to know if her new employee intended to hang around, but maybe it was more than that. Was she, in fact, on the lookout for spies? Well, probably everyone was around here, and for spies of many stripes. On top of the immense security in place... The various sub-departments of R&D were seemingly engaged in little internecine wars, maybe making distrust to the point of paranoia a normal frame of mind. It would be a difficult environment for any project to flourish in, but on something so important, so sweeping, it was flat-out dangerous. It screamed of classic mismanagement, bloated bureaucracy, and a security force that either didn't understand the implications involved, which was preposterous, or one that was hamstrung by corporate policies too conflicting or opaque to ever be followed properly. It depends on how things go, right? She just nodded, without any further probing, then pointed to a hatch on the far end of the bay. Come on, this way. It's a bit of a walk from here, but... I'll show you some history. The very first free jump? Dieter whispered, envious as all get out. His beer stopped halfway to his mouth. 
Yep, prototype number one, codenamed Cageless. Just over a year old and already obsolete. They have it mothballed in a storeroom all its own. Tiny thing, one-seater. He laughed at the thought of it and took a drink. I did the same. Dieter was halfway through a double shift he was pulling for someone and was on lunch break. His beer was a sad 1% thing that corporate okayed for on-the-job consumption. He didn't seem to care much. Barney and the team had smackball practice, so that left me with a night to myself. Anyway, I said, changing the topic, what do we do now? If malicious code was introduced somehow into Mavis's system, then she's in danger. If it wasn't, she's still in danger because we don't know what's wrong. This was only a viable plan so long as we weren't hurting as a crew. It might be time to give it all up. Sure, she'd end up in custody just like the rest of us, but at least she'd be alive. I'm not so sure about that for any of us, he argued. You know what's at stake here. Those team Johnnies do too. I won't feel comfortable until we're light years away. I was drinking a beautiful, rosy, umber-colored brandy wine. It was strong, and I was feeling it. I rather needed to, to be honest. The very idea of being light years from here seemed light years away. I looked around the dark pub, half expecting to see the webs that were holding us, holding me to this very spot and moment in time. They were there, to be sure, but just out of sight. Any news on General Store's fabrication schedule? Nope. And even if the parts were ready right now, I can't possibly pick them up in person. No one with my job needs star jump propagators. I could have them ship it to me without drawing attention, but it's their policy to only send parts or materials to the routing office over on Centerline or to the dockside receiving depot up on the hub. It might raise eyebrows on the hub, too, I mused, working it out. If a tech maintenance guy for the station picked up some ship parts, lots of mechanics walking around up there who'd know better. But a busy routing office downtown wouldn't think twice. Their only function is to move packages. Afterwards, we can have our friends just delete the fabrication and delivery orders from the system in case anybody wonders about it later on. He considered that for a bit, then nodded. I like it. You know, even after the parts are in hand, I'll still need time to install them. I have to do it in and around my work schedule here, and brother, they've been piling on the mandatory overtime. Fixing a jump engine isn't the sort of thing you want to do when you're exhausted, let me tell you. That sounded like a good thing to trust him on, but the image of our hungover engineer working a separate day job was somewhat riveting. It made me think of my own situation, and of all the people who saw me now, but didn't see me at all. Mavis had asked before if I was going native. I'd been sure of the answer then. Now? After a night out with the gang, it was sometimes hard to remember that there were other people here, or rather, out there, who were in need. People I mostly didn't trust, yet didn't have any choice but to. 
There was no way to get Mavis off the ship without fighting with the others about it, and in Chris's case that was likely a literal concern. There was no way to get her on station without getting caught, and there was certainly no way to get her any cybernetic-type help without revealing everything. Yet there was also no way to leave this place quietly without her. Life has gotten surreal, I muttered, and Dieter laughed bitterly. We can't exit the way we came, I reasoned. We simply can't manage it without Mavis, but if they've hurt her, we can't let her stay there. Agreed? I want to say yes, the engineer replied, and then drained his glass. Then say it. The first step to this is actually making the decision. They're the enemy now if they did this thing. They might not have, he pointed out, swiping at a ring device he'd bought on station. It popped up with the time in bright green numerals, and he cursed lowly. It could be a software bug of some kind, or maybe they did do it, but if so, they're holding all the cards until we come up with a plan. John and Stina should be able to look at her code and get an idea of what's wrong. I would say that's actually the first step. I thought about it while he got up, shrugging on his uniform jacket. They had him working in a coolant pump house this shift, and it was cold in there. Okay, I said at last. But if, for whatever reason, they say they can't do it, it'll be telling. You need to mend some fences, either way, he advised, gathering his tool bag and shouldering it. Otherwise, it'll be hard to tell what's duplicity and what's just hatred for the gunner. They don't all hate me. He made a non-committal sound and trudged off. I sat there for a long time, thinking, and eventually ordered a large plate of scobble. This was a greasy concoction of protein and carbs drowned in gravy. It was fairly popular along the border here, but actually had its origins in some ethnic dish from Noble Space. It had been featured in a long-running entertainment sim, Burning Loyalties, I think it was, or some other soap opera, and had percolated into the popular consciousness, so much so, in fact, that it could now be found in bars and restaurants throughout much of settled space. Samples was no exception. The waitress eyed me oddly, I thought, so I did the same back at her. All alone tonight? she asked. I made a show of looking around at the now-empty table, which got a laugh. She was a large woman, tall and stocky, strong-looking. Seemingly in her early thirties, she had brown curly hair and frank eyes. Her mouth was done up with lipstick that matched her hair, only outlined in a lighter color. It wasn't a great look, actually, because it made her mouth seem vague, like it had no borders, as if her face just sort of morphed into a coppery-looking orifice right there in the middle. Still, it was a smiling orifice, and that was very welcome just then. I don't think I know your name, I announced. Layden, she answered flatly, tapping her name tag, though the smile didn't waver. I've only been working in this pub and in this exact same shift since 
Oh, I don't know. Before you even moved here? I'm getting it left and right today, I complained. Have a heart. You are Ejok, she pronounced. I've added up your tab more than once. You know my name, and you know what I like to drink. What else do you know? I know you don't like smackball, though you pretend to for the sake of your friends. That's either a horrible thing to do or a noble one. Maybe it's both. Both? Okay, so now I know you're comfortable with ambiguity. I took up a gooey protein chunk and bit down, then whimpered and panted through my mouth because it was still very hot. Careful, they're hot. When I could talk again, and after wiping gravy from my mouth, I scowled at her in only partially mock irritation. What kind of waitress are you? Her boundaryless lips curled on both sides, and she turned away without another word. I went in for a second brandy wine after the food was gone. That was a mistake. A station shift change had occurred while I was sitting there getting sozzled, and the pub was getting quite full. Layden was still on duty and too busy to talk now or flirt or whatever that had been, and I ended up feeling isolated and lonely, even among all the noise and activity. They needed the table anyway, so I chugged my beer and tottered out. The main drag was congested, at least this part of it, because it was residential, with flats and sleep cubes on both sides of the road. A shift change meant people leaving for work or coming home from it. My own place wasn't far, but it seemed like an endless walk. I could have taken the tram, but didn't feel like waiting. I didn't spot the man following me until I'd almost reached home. It was just a couple of glimpses. A dumpy, round guy, not unlike myself, wearing a floppy hat. I'd seen hats like that on the heads of many production line workers and machinists hereabout, which they wore to keep welding sparks and stray plastic and metal shavings out of their hair. The overhead lights had a reputation for causing headaches, too. Such things weren't required, but they were common. They also did a decent job of hiding a person's face, if said person kept their eyes to the floor, or seemed to. I was tempted to just keep walking past my apartment door, but that was stupid. Individual living quarters were all in the public registry. If someone was interested in me, they would already know who I was and where I lived. When I got to it, I opened the door with alacrity and scuttled inside, the beer lending panic and clumsiness. I waited for several minutes, trying to listen, but the door was probably sound-deadened like most residential ones, and I heard nothing. Eventually, I risked a peek. A young couple, likely on a date, floated by in their own world. That was it. No dumpy hat man. When I closed the door again and turned around, Barney was sitting on the couch in our small living room, watching me. Everything okay, Jock? I think that's what he said. That's what I answered anyway. 
But the room was spinning now, looking foreboding and insecure like the streets. So I waved goodnight and stumbled off to bed. You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk Analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.